Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM, brought to you this time by ExpressVPN and Eero. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Jason Snell. Stephen, the space world never stops. There's always more. There's always more. How are you? The, the stars keep shining. The planets keep spinning. Yeah, it's true. It's true. There are black holes flying around. Black holes flinging stars around. There's all sorts of stuff going on. Big black holes, Jason. Ginormous black holes. There may be larger black holes than we think. And yeah, there's lots. There's lots. We, in fact, there are more black hole stories than we could actually fit in this episode. That's how many black hole stories there are. Before we get there, though, we have some pre-flight checklist items. And I wanted to start with Commercial Crew, because as we know, we are perpetually in the year of Commercial Crew. 2019 is the year of Commercial Crew, Stephen. We have to talk about it. It It's the year. Oh, no. We're at the end of 2019. You're right. Next year is also the year of Commercial Crew, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Well, so uh, Boeing and ULA, they've been preparing the Starliner capsule and the Atlas V to to take its uncrewed test flight. They are now targeting December 19th, so a couple of weeks after this goes up. And, you know, it's it's moving forward. It's a big step for, for Boeing. And if this uh, goes well, then they will move on to uh, crewed flights at some point in the future. Uh, but this is an uncrewed test, like SpaceX did earlier this year. So they fly it, it gets goes to the ISS, and then comes yep. back. Yeah, so it's a, it's a key it's one of those key milestones, right? Like we've been talking about these boxes that they, they you know, both companies have to check before they can set put people in a in a rocket and 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 shoot it into space, right? They've got to do all of these different things. In fact, um little very brief SpaceX update, uh they they have scheduled at least uh, or I guess what, what's happened is that they, they are inviting the press, like NASA is inviting the press to register to go to the SpaceX in-flight abort test, which is that, remember, we talked about the explosion, rapid, unexpected disassembly mm-hmm. of the SpaceX capsule um, while they were they were working on the in-flight abort system, which includes these little rockets that blast the capsule away from an accident that's happening on the rocket. So it's a human safety system. And um, they have been working out the bugs because that was a pretty big bug. It exploded that capsule. And the invitations are not quite going out, but like the invitations to apply to get a spot covering the event have gone out, uh, which means that it looks like SpaceX intends to do this in late December or or early January. And that will leave them um, very close uh, again to doing a, uh, to doing a crewed mission next year. Getting closer and closer flight by flight. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a, uh, the NASA inspector general actually did a report. It was about a lot of stuff in NASA, but one of the things that they talked about was commercial crew because there's the issue where um, NASA is still pay- paying the Russian space agency for seats on Soyuz missions, and that's their only access to space. So um, the inspector general, which is theoretically a level-headed person who is not political in the same way, right? Like they're not they're not trying to pump up the the uh the expectations their job is to make a a kind of level-headed view of what's going to happen and the inspector general says that it looks like you know by mid 2020 commercial crew should be happening it'll be interesting to see how that relationship with russia changes after that you know right now it feels like they're sort of forced get alongness between the space agencies right. and like what will happen with ISS once we're not paying for seats like that's all sort of new territory really yeah and i think we mentioned last time that we you know you can't think of this as well haha no more soyuz flights that's actually not true but what it does mean is that they will go to a barter system it sounds like where um, you know we give you a ride you give us a ride is how it will work as opposed to having to write them a check uh, for their for their system, and so that what it does is it they don't the Russians aren't going to have the money coming in, but they're also going to be reducing their expenses because they're going to be able to get astronauts up without doing their own launches 
Uh, and so you kind of mix those together, but it, it does change the dynamic. And I think that's the most important thing from the U.S. perspective is it changes the, the, the dynamic of having them be the only ride to space, which they currently are. Like if you want to get a person in space to the ISS, that's it. you got to pay Russia money. That's it. And it's not a great position to be in. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, Insight and the mole. We've we've been covering this and there's a there's an article uh, a story, I should say, up on NPR from a few days ago, looking at this, which I wanted to point out too, because it's it's you know mainstream coverage of this, and and it's always interesting what space stories sort of get out of our circle into the uh, <laughs> into the bigger right. world. This was on All Things Considered. It's pretty mainstream, and I'm not sure there's much necessarily like new information in this. They talk about uh, the way the tool worked and the way they think that it failed and got pushed out. And we spoke about this how. This device was supposed to like hammer its way down and maybe there was debris getting around it, causing it to sort of bounce back off that that debris back out of the hole. Uh, they do say that they have um, moved it back into position and they're working to get it level with the surface again using the pinning technique, which we talked about, bringing that scoop on insight uh, at the end of its arm and pushing against it. But clearly that wasn't enough to keep this from happening. And so they are still working on a a more long-term fix, if there is one, to make this tool do what it was supposed to do. Uh, So there's progress being made. Uh, I feel like some of the frustration uh, on the part of the engineers and and, uh, program people at JPL sort of came through in this, which which I appreciate it, right? I'm sure it is sort of uh, frustrating. Like I think uh, somebody was quoted by saying they were distraught when they see the images. And it's important to remember like they're actual people working on this. It's not just a, right. a robot doing its thing. Well, imagine being in charge of the mole. And then like we said last time, uh, you check the video one day, check the picture oh, man. and suddenly the mole has popped all the way back out. And you're like, what? What just happened? Like it's so terrible. So, so yeah, they're, they're very slowly putting it back down to, to the, um, to, they wanted to get it sort of in the ground, but remember it's supposed to go many, many feet down. Right. Um, and so the question is just sort of like, once they get it back in the ground, they've got to try to figure out using what very limited stuff they've got available to them on the surface they could possibly do to get it to kind of catch and go, uh, deeper down. And you know that they're doing their, their thing where they're comparing this to, um, They've got a, a Mars, you know, Mars double with uh, where they can test this stuff on Earth. Um, and, you know, it, it's fascinating, too, because it means that we're learning that the the contents and the, the, the character of the soil on Mars is not what they expected. Right. The the makeup here is not at all what they sort of programmed this thing to, to work with. And if it is somehow softer or broken down more easily, well, they're learning that and they will apply that to those... Like I said, that those mock-ups we have here, but also in designing future tools where you can imagine future spacecraft will have uh, potentially similar things and they'll be better prepared. All of this is learning. All of this is progress, even if one particular spacecraft, one particular mission uh, experiences trouble. Yeah, but next time they're going to have to send up like a pole or something. So you just kind of push it like yeah. keep pushing it down like an extendable kind of thing because yeah. they thought that this thing could just kind of dig down on its own and maybe you know that will be rethought in a future mission that that you can't count on that it's like the uh like use like a glue stick gun you know you got to put one like glue stick in behind the other one so it kind of pushes through it's like that keep on pushing yeah, yeah. sure space glue stick makes sense Mm-hmm. I'm title fishing at this point. I'll just say it. Yeah. Nice try. <laughs> I want to talk about Plum Brook Station in Ohio. We mentioned this NASA facility several months ago. It was it was new to me. Uh, it is a facility outside of Cleveland that has four large facilities that are designed to test spacecraft in a bunch of different ways. So they have a huge, uh, basically a huge vacuum. So you can roll a spacecraft in like a, a telescope or in this case, the Orion capsule, bring it to a vacuum you know, make sure everything uh, does what it's supposed to do. They have vibration testing because launches are extremely violent. You want to make sure that no part of your spacecraft rattles loose. And Orion, the Orion capsule for Artemis 1, has been transported to Plumbrook for uh, two rounds of testing. Uh, the first is uh, temperature testing. So if you think about we go through our Apollo missions, we talk often about the um, rotisserie mode where they would take the 
co- combined spacecraft lunar module command module service module and they would rotate it along uh, along the long axis so the heat from the sun would evenly heat the surface of the spacecraft because what you don't want is to one side of your spacecraft be really really hot and the other be really cold it causes metal fatigue causes other issues but if you rotate it then you can spread the heat out and everything is sort of uh, much more even and much easier on all the components and so same thing as a deal with Orion and its service module Uh, you got to make sure that the spacecraft can handle these big temperature swings, in this case, minus 250 to uh, 300 degrees Fahrenheit, so a huge range, uh, to replicate flying in and out of sunlight and shadow. And so they have this big room, they roll it in there, and they they push it through these temperature swings to make sure they don't have any issues. It's like a barbecue, also a freezer. Um, <laughs> it's pretty extreme. <laughs> it is. Uh, the, uh, the second test, once that is wrapped up, is a, a two-week electromagnetic interference and compatibility test. So this will look at all the spacecraft's electronics and basically they turn everything on at the same time and make sure that there's no uh, interference in things like wiring or control panels, make sure everything is properly grounded and covered. It made me think about, you know, back in the day, you know, your cell phone, before your cell phone would ring, you could hear like the crackle on your radio. Like remember that, that sound? Uh, oh, yeah. you, you don't want that on a spacecraft. And so making yeah. sure you have all those issues ironed out. These spacecraft are complicated. There are a lot of systems that share a lot of shared space. And you have things in shared conduit and right next to each other. And you want to make sure that everything is isolated. You don't have interference. If you think about the systems on a spacecraft like life support, like guidance, all of that stuff has got to be spot on. And if if there's any issues, it, it very quickly becomes dangerous in a crude spacecraft. So they will also be looking at that uh, at Plum Brook. So uh, this Orion capsule will be there for a little while, and then it will uh, move on on its slow winding journey to a launch sometime in 2021. Maybe. Perhaps. That depends on, that depends on the SLS. But it's, it's moving forward. It's moving forward. We will have an SLS update uh, and find out more pretty soon. Yeah, just a few minutes. <laughs> uh, we should talk about, uh, we've got some Vikram follow-up. This is uh, the Indian lunar lander that we talked about. This is part of the, the Chandrayaan-2 mission to the moon, which is an orbiting satellite. But they, they launched Vikram as a, uh, a lander. And just as as the uh, the Israel uh, Bereshit um, lander, they both came close, but they didn't quite make it. Um, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, our our eyes and ears, our spy satellite above the moon, has imaged the area around where uh, where Vikram was trying to land, and they do it a lot, and they do it over time, and that means that they could have they ended up with a before and after picture of this area because it's you know it's very nice. So we're going to get in later into the story of like why the LRO exists and what it was meant for. But uh, what is really cool about it is that they were able to basically find the differences over this terrain between picture A and picture B. And um, it it took three months to get it done to verify it because the area wasn't lit properly the first times that uh, LRO passed over it. But they can now image that area, compare it to before. And you can see there's a big white splat yeah. of... <laughs> Of where the orbiter uh, kicked up a lot of dust as it smashed into the surface. Yeah. Or where the lander. The, the lander. There's debris yeah. and all sorts of stuff. This is very similar to how they, they look at uh, Mars with the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter after uh, a touchdown. So they'll look for like the parachute and the back shell and all those things. And you do that by comparing right. uh, photos. The difference here was it wasn't quite – no one was quite sure where this was. They knew the general area, but they they weren't – positive where something like landing on Mars, you know right where your spacecraft is, so you can you can hunt it down more easily. So this took some time. Uh, people were pouring through these images and uh, and found it. And it does sort of put a, uh, a closing chapter on this, but India is going to be back at it. And I think I think that before long, they will join the club of, of countries that have landed successfully on the lunar surface. So one of the nice things about this is that although LRO does all these images and these images are public, they couldn't find it. And it was actually found by 
an Indian programmer, Shanmuga Supermanian. Um, he lives in Chennai, and he found what he thought was the impact site, and that there was a new dot in the image, and he he actually um, was just searching in the spare in his spare time looking for it, and then he contacted NASA, and they looked at it, and they said, "Yep, you got it." So he he gets the credit, which is pretty cool, mm-hmm. um, and that it's one of the he is a countryman of the of the mission, which is also pretty cool. So uh, you know, it's not great that it didn't land, but uh, it's it's great that we can see that site from from the LRO. Yeah, he has this quote about how the the failure of the lander has really made an impact on culture in India, and like and like it, people are just talking about the space program, and it's been sort of front of mind of everybody. And uh, he said that he didn't think the lander would have made such an impact if it had landed successfully. But because it failed, you know, it's a story. And uh, I find that kind of interesting because it's it's similar to what we see here, right? Like, think think about the shuttle in particular. It's sort of in the background until something uh, bad happened, right? And then there's a lot of conversation. Then it sort of calms down. And uh, that's a challenge with space agencies, especially public ones that are funded by taxpayers and you, you need the government and everyone to kind of pull in the same direction. When these things go wrong, you know, there is attention, but that attention led to something really interesting this time where this citizen found this. And um, I don't know, I think it's super neat. Yeah. All right. Uh, we are going to talk about some more stuff, but let me tell you about our first sponsor. That is ExpressVPN. We all know how a VPN can protect your privacy and security online, but it's the holidays. You're probably traveling, but you, you're also maybe at home binging, uh, binging some TV, catching up on some stuff, maybe for all mankind or something on Netflix or Hulu. And ExpressVPN can take that TV watching to the next level by unlocking movies and shows that are only available in other countries. That means you can use ExpressVPN to binge things on the UK or Japanese versions of Netflix, even if you're not in those countries. ExpressVPN hides your IP address so you can control where you want sites to think you're located. And you can choose from a long list of almost 100 different countries. That's a lot of online libraries to go through. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but ExpressVPN is super fast, ridiculously fast, which is what you want when you're streaming a bunch of media. Uh, and I, I can attest to this. I've used other VPNs in the past. I stick with ExpressVPN because it does not slow down my connection. There's no buffering, there's no lag, and you can stream in HD. And it's compatible with all your devices, phones, consoles, smart TVs, tablets, laptops, pretty much anywhere you'd want to watch, uh, you can. So if you head over to expressvpn.com slash liftoff, you'll get three extra months free with a one-year package. Support the show, watch what you want, and protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash liftoff. Our thanks to ExpressVPN for their support of the show and all of Relay FM. All right, Jason, you brought a uh, a topic that's sort of uh, <laughs> sort of left over from our uh, our previous Apollo twelve episode about Al Bean, and we talked about the Corvettes, and this has yeah. uh, has popped up. This popped into my feed um, after we did that episode, and I thought, oh, this is great. I wish I had known this when we did that episode. Just a little side note, we'll put a link in the show notes to this really nice story on Motor Trend. From It's actually originally written in 2013, but they reposted it for the 50th anniversary of Apollo uh, thir- 11, presumably, and also 12. But um, it's about Albine's Corvette. So they made, you know, there was a Houston area Corvette dealer or, or um, Chevrolet dealer. And um, part of the marketing and benefits of being an astronaut and marketing for the private sector using the astronauts was they got them fancy cars and they got them Corvettes. That was the car of choice for these test pilot astronauts, right? Um, and most of them were uh, taken back or sold off or lost, but one of them has survived and is completely intact and it's Albine's Corvette. Now, uh, remember we said the three astronauts on Apollo 12 got Corvettes. They were unlike most of them that were totally stock. These were custom ordered in the, by, by the astronauts or in the names of the astronauts and custom painted with their titles for the mission. So they're very special and they end up with like Albine's Corvette was, uh, titled to Albine. Um, and they got to keep them for a few years and then they turned them back in. Anyway, um, 
so it gets turned back in. It's 1971, and there the dealer is doing basically an auction for this car, and somebody bid like ten or fifteen thousand dollars for it, thinking it's an astronaut car, it's historic, but they didn't check out for whatever reason. That bid was uh, rejected. Mm. Um, they didn't like they didn't come up with the money, and this guy named Danny Reed put in a bid of like. $3,230, which was only a small amount of money above like the the actual price, the worth of just a Corvette of this kind. Um, so it was a steal then, and it's really a steal now because he got a historical item. And he is a, uh, Danny Reed is a, a car guy. Uh, he kept it as is until the late 90s. Then he reconditioned it and worked with like an expert Corvette restorer to make it like new. It's actually won lots of awards in classic car shows. Um, so here's here's a quote from it that I wanted to mention, this Motor Trend article, which is great. Of all the Corvettes loaned to the astronauts through Chevy's special lease program, only the Apollo 12 crews were special ordered. Only their three cars were registered in the lessee's name. The original tank sticker on Reed's car says, courtesy car delivered to Alan L. Bean. So it's a very specific, well-documented, this is Al Bean's Corvette. And then the article, which was written, like I said, back in 2013, so they actually talked to Al Bean, who was alive back then, and he said that he actually actually saw it when the restored version of it and loved it and said it was in way better shape than it was when he owned it. And at the time of that writing, it had like very low mileage on it, like 30,000 miles or something on it. So it's really just like a pristine example of a restored Corvette, but it's got this extra history because it's an astronaut Corvette and it's Albine's Corvette. That's just, I'm not, I'm not super into cars at all. That is an understatement, but like, this is a really fun story about this strange little side thing about astronauts apollo astronauts with their corvettes and especially the corvettes of apollo 12 it's really cool there was a, a video uh section on the the grand tour which is amazon prime's top gear reboot with those same guys and last year i think james may one of the presenters got to drive uh one of these astronaut Corvettes, and it was actually Neil Armstrong's, I believe. Hmm. It, it's, you know, he talks about sort of being in it and it being a very emotional moment in his life, like getting to getting to drive that. Um, it was pretty neat. So I'll, I'll see if I can find that on YouTube maybe and, and put a, a link to that because it was really a neat uh a neat look at that that car and he talks some of again some about some of the history of these Corvettes and how these guys all had them and how it became a real um sort of a a real iconic piece of like sort of astronaut lore for a long time. Yep. Yeah, it's 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 cool. I found that so we'll uh we'll uh put that in the show notes. There's a the grand tour with him driving that Corvette. Nice. All right. I think it's time for everyone's favorite segment, the SLS segment. Space launch system segment, explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and trivia. Dun, dun, dun! That was my dramatic reading of SLS. Good. Segment. That was very strange. Usually you're the one making music with your mouth and I'm the one reading, but it's all, it's all crazy today. SLS segment! There you go. I've been on RS25 watch with the uh with the SLS <laughs> putting putting the shuttle main engines uh on the first rocket. In October they announced the first one was on and now all four are attached to the first core stage. Uh, I have a link to NASA Spaceflight their article about it. We spoke a little bit about the history of some of the the motors that are on this. Um they have a really in-depth article talking about them. And there's there's only um, there's only 14 or so of, of sort of these stock left of these RS 25s, and the first Artemis flights, of course, require 16 because there's four per, per launch, and they are not reusable. So flight two, uh, so Artemis two, will use two new RS 25s that are being they're being built now. It's actually the RS 25 E is the designation. And then flights three and four will sort of polish off the le the last of the remaining stock of the old uh, shuttle engine. So 
Again, we're looking towards the green run being next, but I, because we've been talking about this, I just wanted to to make a note that uh, all four have been uh, affixed to the first core stage. Starting to look like a rocket. It really is. Okay. Slowly but surely. <laughs> um, uh, sort of the other bit of SLS news that caught my eye uh, the, the last month was uh, a story about the um, the flight control software. So if you think back to the Saturn V, there was the uh, the instrument ring that sat um, in the rocket had all of sort of the the onboard computers all in one section, controlled telemetry and and thrust and all, all that stuff. Uh, the SLS, of course, is similar. It has a bunch of stuff on board, and there is a um, the story on uh, NASA's site about the flight software and avionics system, sort of the brain of the rocket. Um, and this is uh, work. It works in conjunction with the ground team and the software on the ground at Kennedy. Right, these things have to interface, and then the software on the rocket takes over. And, and NASA on the ground still has some insight into that, but it's a very complicated relationship. And um, the uh, the systems integration lab at Marshall in Huntsville. Uh, they are sort of the lead on this uh, software. Uh, I actually recently met somebody whose dad worked at this uh, lab back in the day, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, hmm. Basically a software developer for NASA. Um, so that lab was certified for uh, the final integrated testing in November. So they can move forward with the uh, the final testing, final steps in programming of this hardware software combination that is going to drive uh, the SLS during its launch. Uh, obviously critically important, obviously critically uh, like complicated in a way. Like if you look at this picture, it kind of looks like something out of, <laughs> out of the Saturn five. Like it's a bunch of boxes and wires going everywhere, but you got to mm-hmm. remember this is a flying computer that's going to get vibrate to death. And so just like we talked about a second ago about the Orion's testing all of this hardware has got to go through similar testing because it has to work throughout the rigors of a launch. And that means temperature swings. That means vibration. That means noise. Things that computers generally don't like. And so this is all built to be extremely robust. And as they move forward in this testing, working out any issues uh, with that combination of software and hardware. Yeah, I like it that it's the um, the testing has passed the test. Yep. So. So now begins the actual uh, testing of it, and I also enjoyed it in this uh, this story. The uh, they they will be doing the normal testing, but obviously al- also all of the edge cases. Where what if something goes a little bit wrong? Mm-hmm. How do the avionics respond? And that's they use the charming phrase "off nominal" for those. It's like yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. off nominal events that might occur. <laughs> uh, but but anyway, the test environment has been tested and it passed the test. So now now begin the tests. It's good. Well, you got to make sure you're testing the right things, you know? Um, for sure. When I was in Huntsville for the stay at NASA thing, we got to see some of the test stands. And they, they weren't, we didn't get to see this. But a, lar- a lot of what they talked about in even building the test stand is you have to make sure the test stands will behave in the way that you expect them to, right? You have to make sure that the structures you've built to bolt this thing just to, to test it, that's all got to be bulletproof too. And so... It is sort of a weird thing to think about, but in certifying spacecraft for flight, certifying rockets for flight, like you're only as certain as your information lets you be. And so you have to be really certain that your information is as good as it can be. And part of that is understanding that the tests that we put this through were really well thought out, right? You got to make sure that right. the the certification you gave it actually looked at the right things. And, and so that's what this step is. And... Uh, they will, you know, move forward in conjunction with the rest of the SLS as they uh, work their way towards launch. It's rocket science. It is literally rocket science. Rocket computer mm-hmm. science, even. Yeah. You could even you could even uh, join those two together. Yeah, absolutely. That is the SLS segment. Kind of short, but you know, it's. Um, I think we're sort of in the stage where a lot of the the big stuff with the SLS is now sort of a ways off, right? So like it was it was neat yeah. to see the stage come together. It was neat to see. The motors go on. I think the next big milestone will probably be the green run, uh, that that full test burn. All right. Should we move on to some regular topics, non-SLS related? Yeah. Let's do some some non-SLS segments. Okay. Uh, I've got another acronym for you, which is ESA. 
It's the European Space Agency. And the story here is basically that the European Space Agency uh, approved its largest budget ever, which is 14.4 billion euros over five years. Now, ESA, I think we should probably at some point do an episode about the European Space Agency because as Americans, we don't know a lot about it. But I will just say for those who don't know... Um, European Space Agency is a consortium of European governments. It is not related to the EU. So like Brexit does not mean that the UK, which is one of the three primary funders of ESA, is going to not be part of ESA anymore. It's a it's a different organization. They will still belong to it. Um, and they are a major player in space. There's, you know, you got the US and and Japan and China and Russia but ESA is a, a major player in space, and they're going to spend a lot of money, and it's on a bunch of different stuff. So they have extended support of the International Space Station through 2030, which is something that's been talked about in the U.S. but hasn't been formalized. This idea of just kind of continuing, yes, we are going, we're not going to take it apart. We're going to continue using the ISS through 2030. But they are also funding cooperation with the U.S. in its Lunar Gateway project, which makes it look a little bit more like a maybe not international space station but is it is not just a u.s space station uh around the moon as a part of that their press release says european astronauts will fly to the moon for the first time because that's one of the trade-offs right we fund your project but we also want to put some of our people on it great so that'll be good for them europeans to the moon for the first time they are funding 150 million euros for robotic lunar missions so they're getting on board with the idea of uh also understanding more about the moon using robotic missions that are not the not crewed missions that will still tell us a lot and and let us investigate the surface um they're already in involved in um orion because they're actually developing the service module for orion so that's an that that part of orion the that spacecraft the service module is an esa project and they're working on exomars 2020 their mars probe that they're working on, I think, with the Russian space space agency, and that has had parachute problems. And I read a story about how it's it's oh, still no. it, it's, it's always still the getting tight. They're still testing the parachutes, um, but they have a launch window, so it's one of those things where they're definitely feeling the pressure to get the parachutes right for ExoMars 2020. Otherwise, they're going to have to change the name. So, but anyway, there's a lot going on and we don't talk about them as much as we probably should because we're Americans, but there's a lot going on at the European Space Agency. And uh, yeah, I think there's a note we should write down to maybe uh, talk about ESA in a future episode and give some more background about the Mm -hmm. history and what they're, what they're up to. Um, But, but uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're in 14.4 billion over five years. It's great news. And and of course there, we've talked about ESA a little bit and conjunction with SLS because they're building the service module for Orion, right? We, we've touched on that a couple of times. Uh, so it, moving forward, Artemis is shaping up to be pretty different than Apollo. You know, Apollo was pretty American through and through, and uh, Artemis isn't going to be, and I think that's great. All right. Uh, you want to tell us about our second sponsor? Sure. Uh, this episode is also brought to you by Eero. If you want to binge watch your favorite TV shows, wow, every ad we read is about binge watching, Stephen. I know, it's that time of year, I guess. Anyway, um, you know, you need bandwidth and you're on a mobile device, you're wireless, uh, you want to be able to watch from anywhere in your house, that back bedroom, out out in the yard, whatever, uh, without interruption. You need Eero, it will blanket your house with Wi-Fi, good, fast Wi-Fi, fast, reliable no poor coverage, no dead spots, no buffering. So you can have consistently strong signals wherever you need to get it. My house was not properly covered back when I had a single Wi-Fi box. I don't live in a particularly large house, but something about it, like the front of the house couldn't get it. The back of the house couldn't get it. There were like dead spots. There were spots where you knew like if this if this closet door was closed then everybody lost their signal and be like, mm-hmm. oh, what happened? And the answer was, the closet door was closed. Oh, of course. So how do we solve that? We went to an Eero system where we've got multiple Eero devices in our house. It's mesh networking. It spreads everything out. And now the whole footprint of my house and my backyard, all of it has reliable, fast Wi-Fi. Uh, there's a brand new Eero that just came out. Starts at just $99. Sets up in just minutes. Could not be easier to set this stuff up. You plug it straight into your modem or router box. You manage it from a super simple app. 
lets you do stuff. If you want to pause the Wi-Fi while you're eating dinner, you can do that from there. You can get notifications when a new device tries to join your Wi-Fi network, which is a lot of fun. Uh, it's fixed my Wi-Fi problems. I don't have the dead spots anymore. You can get yours fixed, too. In fact, you can get yours fixed as soon as tomorrow by going to eero.com slash liftoff and entering the code liftoff at checkout. You'll get free overnight shipping on your order. That's E-E-R-O, eero.com slash liftoff, code liftoff at checkout to get your Eero delivered with free overnight shipping. Got to use the URL, eero.com slash liftoff, code liftoff. Thank you to Eero for supporting this show, filling my house with Wi-Fi and supporting Relay FM. So we teased the giant black hole story. <laughs> uh, you want to tell us about this? Yeah, there's a big black hole uh, that that uh, people seem to have discovered. 68 solar masses. That's a lot. That's 68 suns in one big black hole. This is a Chinese uh, team. Uh, we now we know that they're. It's about 14,000 light years away. So, you know, relatively nearby. By if you're comparing to like the galactic center, but it's still, it's still pretty far away. Now. We have heard about big black holes before, right? Like at the center of galaxies, there are enormous, supermassive black holes. Right. The problem is that our current understandings of how, um, not these primordial giant supermassive black holes, but how stellar mass black holes from big stars that have collapsed, our current models suggest that they can't really get much bigger than 25 solar masses. So 68 solar masses it would require a lot of understanding of like changes in our understanding of what is going on here. Now, you know, you can come up off the top of your head, you can come up with a bunch of things like, is it was a form with a collision to, from um, other black holes. Um, you also have to say, and this is a, a recurring theme in science. Uh, is there something wrong here? It was there a mismeasurement. It actually, the Gaia space telescope says that this region, uh, they think that this object is actually much closer than the Chinese group thinks it is. Um, and if it is what Gaia says it is, it's a 10 solar mass black hole and it's not special at all. So there's more work to be done to validate or invalidate the hypothesis of this thing. But what's interesting about it is people love black holes and mm-hmm. there's a big one and it's bigger than we think it should be. And that could be potentially very interesting if it's validated because you know one of the great things that we've talked about on this show a lot with science is getting a result you don't think is possible, if you can validate that it seems like a good result, is really interesting because it challenges the assumptions of science. And that's how you drive uh, knowledge forward, is you get an unexpected result that leads you down a path to find that the the model you had of the universe is not quite right. And then and then we learn from that. That's That's great. So more work to be done about the giant black hole. Is it really giant? If it is, why is it so big? Um, and that's that's sort of where we are with that. But again, everybody loves black holes, right? Mm-hmm. Who doesn't? Mm. We've talked about the uh, gravitational wave detection that's been going on and, and how those theories are built around two stars orbiting, maybe becoming black holes, black holes colliding. So there's there's been a lot of conversation around this topic over the last few years. And it's it is interesting uh, the thing I keep coming back to with this is like, is it where we think it is? Because it seems like so much of this conversation uh, hinges on that. So hopefully uh, we will continue to learn more as time goes on. Giant black hole, everyone's favorite. Big black hole, everybody loves them. I like big black holes. I cannot lie. Mm, no. No? Not going to let that one through? Man. No. Rejected. Wow. <laughs> shut, shut down. Yep. <laughs> we spoke about LRO a second ago the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. And uh, there is a um, there's an Artemis tie-in here, right? We're going to the moon in soon, 2024-ish, sometime after that. Yeah. LRO launched in 2009, and it launched in a time frame where NASA thought it was going to be going back to the moon very soon. And it was designed, a lot of its mission was built around finding locations on the surface for us to land. Just like they did in Apollo where they sent uh, early probes to the moon. They didn't orbit the moon. Most of them actually smashed into the moon. But uh, trying to find a good place to go. And, of course, now we know that there's water ice. And so that that makes things more complicated, finding a place near the poles to land. Uh, You've got to be able to really search the lunar surface. So LRO was, was launched with all that in mind. But then the Constellation program fell apart, Slash was killed, and the 
reconnaissance orbiter was sort of uh, reworked. The mission was reworked to to collect science about the the lunar orbit. Of course, it has you know all the same. That's sort of a funny thing to say, right? Because it has all the same hardware on it. You can't go up there and like change something out. But the, what they were doing with the data uh, changed, and uh, LRO has been sort of in that mode now uh, for almost a decade. And with the Artemis uh, missions with the Lunar Gateway, with all of that stuff on the horizon, uh, there have been questions about where uh, LRO may may come back into that, may sort of return to its original type of work. And here we are looking for places to land. And once again, I think NASA is going to turn to LRO to um, – to prepare information for NASA's teams to, to pick a landing place. And so um, there's this, uh, there's a story on space.com. There's a quote from project scientists saying that uh, their team is sharpening their pencils ready for this work. Uh, Cause it's going to be, it's going to be important in the, in the very near future. So uh, I would expect that, that in the coming, maybe even the coming months, but definitely in the coming couple of years, uh, we will see more conversation from NASA and its partners about not only data collected from LRO, but but what that data means in terms of places to touch down robotic and eventually crewed missions. Yeah, isn't it funny how the, the wheel turns? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like George Bush thought this was a great part of uh, going to the moon with people, and then it just uh, didn't happen. We got great science out of it, and now it's, uh, oh, hey, we do have a satellite that could do all these things as right. we're planning crewed missions. Great. Just what we needed. So what if we just had a – what if we just had – Something to look at the surface. Like, oh, wait, we did that already. We do. Yeah, I, I love I mean, the great thing about this story, the thing, my favorite thing is just that the the chief scientist on this story is, uh, or on this project is like, uh, we're sharpening our pencils. Mm-hmm. Like, Very good. He feel, he feels it, right? Like they, their data, I mean, we mentioned the Vikram thing, right? But it's like their data is now way more valuable to parts of NASA than it used to be because of the interest in the moon and they've just been mapping it and learning about it for a decade since the science mission took over and uh that's great so like it's having a i've learned doing this show Stephen, that having the long view in space is really important Mm -hmm. not just because space is enormous but because like you you always need to be thinking like i'm amazed at how when these missions get mi- built, they are always thinking about the extended mission, about what else they could do, because once you get something in space, like, it costs a lot of money to get it there, and once it's there, you want to keep it working as long as you can and do as much with it as you can and be as kind of open-minded and flexible as you possibly can. And this is another great example of that, where um, you never know what path you might end up going down. And in this case, it's been this winding path that's led the LRO kind of back into the spotlight after 10 years. It, it may outlive all of the political drama between Constellation, Journey to Mars, and then Artemis. <laughs> it, it may. It may. Or it may just get another twist and turn along the way. Who knows? It's one of those spacecraft, you know, uh, that has been sort of, like I said, sort of in the background, not really in the spotlight. There's definitely missions that are sort of more exciting to share about and to, to, to learn about, but an important one nonetheless and one that feels like it's really staged for a, a big moment in the coming years. Would you like to hear about a revolutionary science discovery that may or may not be real? Yes. That's my favorite type of discovery. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, okay. So it's, this is the, welcome to the world of physics. Uh, it's a weird place. I didn't do well in this in they, school. <laughs> let, let me, let me tell you. So basically uh, there's a group of scientists in Hungary. Um, they are looking at um, nuclear decay. They're monitoring the decay of some specific atoms and they got some weird data. That is the like super uh, simplified version of it. They got some weird data where the decay was happening and the location of the decay and the particles that they were measuring uh, were not what they expected. So the, we're talking about like down and dirty, like nuclear physicist uh, with weird results. Um, and part of the story is a disconnect between the realm of these nuclear physicists and the realm of theoretical physicists, where they don't necessarily, they're not, the theoretical physicists are not necessarily pouring over these uh, papers from these groups that are in places like Hungary and are doing some nuclear decay studies. So uh, 
you you wonder sometimes about serendipity about like are there things that we could learn if only these seemingly disconnected people were ta- were talking to each other or looking at each other's work but if you don't have a reason to look at it, you never get that kind of jog of like, well, wait a second, what does this mean? Anyway, a theoretical physicist at UC Irvine saw this information and proposed that it might actually be from a new boson, that this is a uh, fundamental par- particle beyond the, stand ver- the standard model, which we have found all the particles in the standard model now, but there's a lot of weird things going on that uh, we don't, that it doesn't explain. So there's this hope, like, like I said earlier about science, like we've got the standard model, that's great, but if we were to find a particle that didn't fit in the standard model, that would be really interesting because it would mean that the standard model is not all there is in terms of physics in the universe. So um, his suggestion, this theoretical physicist at UC Irvine, was that um, this thing is imparting a force. uh, And now there are the four fundamental forces of the universe. Oh boy, I'm going to try to Uh do it now. Electromagnetic gravitational strong nuclear and weak nuclear forces i think are the four fundamental forces so this theoretical physicist says what if there's a fifth force what if this is a boson that is actually uh conducting a fifth force that is yet undiscovered this is a big leap the stakes are very high essentially if you were to make a discovery that led to a a fifth fundamental force of the universe that is an instant nobel prize right like that is an enormous leap forward um it would be a complete change in how we view the universe it might be a solution people keep kind of bandying this about to the idea of like what the heck is dark matter because dark matter which we see gravitational evidence of but can't really explain um suggest there is more going on than we can see so something like this might be related to that that would be great if you could unlock the key to solving what the what the heck dark matter is that would be big um now the new news is that this group in hungary says that they've seen a similar result with a different element decaying which is a reinforcement of their theory and the theory of the scientists from irvine that this is uh something weird is going on and there's a particle that is being emitted that is uh, not something that we know about. So here's the thing. The stakes are so high that the need to validate the results is super high. And for a lot of good reasons, people are very skeptical that what this might be is a measurement error Hmm. or something else that is not nearly as dramatic as saying, oh, you know what this must be, a new particle and a new force of nature. Like that, that is a big leap. And while it's very exciting to go there, I I understand. And there's a good piece, uh, the, the starts with a bang blog, which is on Forbes, but don't hold it against them. (laughs) Ethan Siegel is a real, uh, a real scientist and, uh, the quanta magazine article, which is by Natalie Walchover, um, those are both good skeptical articles about this. So it's very exciting, the idea that what if there was a fifth fundamental force? What if there was a new boson that was outside of the standard model? What if that meant that we understood more uh, at last about dark matter? All very exciting, but extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And this is not something that has been repeated by others. So, it, you know, there's a lot more work to be done before this is um, even, you know. So what happens is somebody posts a story uh, on Twitter with a very exciting headline that is like scientists think that they've discovered a fifth force of nature. And then that gets passed around and everybody's talking about it like, well, this is a fact. And then inevitably the science scientists and science journalists um, follow up. And those never go as viral and say things like, mm, but probably not. It's literally, Stephen, it is the physics equivalent of it's never aliens. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's probably not a fifth force of nature. It's probably not a new particle. It might be. It might be. But like claiming that it's aliens, you got to have a lot of skepticism. So it's cool because, I mean, um, as we've he- heard on this show, um, Dark matter is weird. Super weird. <laughs> doesn't make sense. Doesn't really make sense. It, we know it's there, but it doesn't make sense. So obviously we're missing something, which is exciting, but it's also frustrating if you have no way to figure out what 
it is and how you're missing it. So everybody wants to find something like this. It would be really great, but skepticism is required. So I think it's a good example of how science works and also how people like cold fusion. You know, I lived through that where it's like, oh, we've done fusion in a very at, at a low temperature. And it's like, well, it turned out they didn't. Right. It was an extraordinary claim. Could not be re- repeated. Could not be uh, cleared as a repeatable thing and di- didn't really exist. So like extraordinary claims are exciting, but they're the ones that deserve the most skepticism. And you're absolutely right. The, the ability to repeat it or to recreate the experiment, recreate the results, that is critical. And Right, right. So if somebody who's not this group in Hungary can repeat the same thing and find out that the... And, and it's very complicated, but it's like the spread of the particles that they're seeing that are thrown off and their their angle of, of deflection is uh, clustered in a certain area, which doesn't make sense based on the existing model. So there must be something else going on there where there's a different particle being emitted um, and then degrading into other particles. Like it, it's very detailed and like, and it's interesting, but it's like somebody else needs to do that and get the same result. That's not like the same scientist with a different material. Cause it's like, okay, but are you making the same mistakes? So again, this is a huge thing. And, and one of the things I find most fascinating about it is the idea that um, there potentially are huge discoveries that don't get made because um, different parts of science aren't looking at one another and aren't talking, which is why I'm a big believer in kind of interdisciplinary stuff. Get people from different groups to rub up against each other because they may may both be... I use the blind man and the elephant metaphor a lot, but I think it's a good example of like, you know, one person doesn't really know like what the totality of it is. But if you get a few different people from different perspectives, you can maybe start to figure it out. It's kind of like that. So I like that aspect of the story. Um, But it's still like, is this real? If I had to put money on it, I'd say it's probably almost certainly not. I'd probably bet a lot of money that this is not a good result. I hope it's a good result because that would be fun and great for science. But the likelihood that this is not something that this is something extraordinary is pretty low given that it should always be extraordinary means the likelihood is low and you got to check it out. Well said. Nobody likes new, new bosons and uh, fifth forces of uh, the universe as much as they like black holes though. Like black holes. That's, that's where it's at. (laughs) That's where lots of things are actually. Yeah, but they're all crushed and you can't see them. <laughs> yeah, you know, right beyond the event horizon. I think that does it for this fortnight. If you want to find links to the stories we spoke about there in the show notes at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 113. While you're there, uh, there's a link in the sidebar to our Tumblr where we post uh, links and videos, stuff in between episodes. There's also a feedback link. You can send us an email or you can find us on Twitter. Jason is there as Jay Snell. And you can follow me on Twitter as ISMH. And until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios. Adios.